0: Even if we can break this mass formation, uh, there will be, if the, if, the, if the elementary conditions, psychological conditions the population is in, such as this loneliness and this lack of meaning making and so on, uh, continue to exist, then a new mass formation will emerge immediately. You're listening
1: to The Corbett Report. Welcome, friends. Welcome back to The Corbett Report. I'm your host, James Corbett of CorbettReport.com, in an interview that is being recorded on the 27th of May, 2022. And I am sure many people in The Corbett Report audience has heard over the past several months something about mass formation psychosis. And as you may or may not know, that is something of a misnomer for a a psychological phenomenon that has been identified and talked about by people in over the years, but most specifically in the coronavirus uh, context, by a professor out of Belgium called Matthias Desmet, he has uh, written a book about this subject that I will be committing to your attention today. So, of course, the link to this book, which is now available for pre-order, will be a- available in the show notes for this conversation. It is called "The Psychology of Totalitarianism" and is available from Chelsea Green Publishing at chelseagreen.com. And Matthias Desmet is a professor of clinical psychology in the Department of Psychology and Educational Sciences at Ghent University in Belgium and a practicing psychoanalytical psych- psychotherapist. Two- in 2018, he received the Evidence Based Psychoanalytic Case Study Prize of the Association for Psychoanalytic Psychotherapy, which is quite a mouthful. <laughs> and in 2019, he received the Wim Triesberg Prize of the Dutch Association of Psychotherapy. Professor Desmet, thank you very much for taking the time to talk with us today
0: you're welcome uh, James uh, thanks for thank you for inviting me
1: well I uh, I very much appreciate it because I uh, I must admit when I first uh, received my pre uh, advanced copy of this book I'm not sure exactly what I was expecting but I don't think I was quite expecting this book and uh, in a pleasant way uh, I think this goes into a lot of a lot deeper uh, aspects of the problem that we are facing than than perhaps I was expecting or prepared for, but obviously i 'm glad for that and i 'm glad to get a chance to share that with the audience. But I think before we dive into this question of mass formation and how to cope with it or how to deal with it or how to derail this agenda or whatever way we want to frame that, as usual, I think we have to start by defining some of these terms because I, as i say i 'm sure everyone has heard something about this over the past several months but probably not in any degree of detail or not like what you've painted in the book. And I would suggest that perhaps the easiest way to begin broaching this conversation is from actually from the introduction to your book, where um, you noted that dictatorships are based on a primitive psychological mechanism, namely on the creation of a climate of fear amongst the population based on the brutal potential of the dictatorial regime. Totalitarianism, on the other hand, has its roots in the insidious psychological process of mass formation, and you go on to say that mass formation is, in essence, a kind of group hypnosis that destroys individuals' ethical self-awareness and robs them of their ability to think critically. All right, so I'm getting the impression from this this is some sort of psychological social phenomenon. But perhaps you can expand on that. What, how, how would you uh, frame mass formation for people who've never heard that term before?
0: Yes. It's indeed crucial to understand what mass formation is if you want to understand the essence of totalitarianism. But as, as you said, as you just quoted from the book, um, people often mix up classical dictatorship with totalitarianism. And it's, it's as I think you're witnessing now the emergence of a new kind of totalitarianism, not the fascist or not the communist totalitarianism, but the technocratic totalitarianism. Mm-hmm. Which is at the same time similar and different from fascist and uh, communist totalitarianism. But as I, as I think you witnessed the emergence of a new totalitarian totalitarianism now, I think it's, it's really crucial to understand what mass formation is and to be aware of how a totalitarian state emerges in a society. And as you uh, mentioned already, um, a mass formation is a typical kind of group formation which has a very specific characteristic impact on individual mental functioning. One of the most remarkable um, effects of mass formation on individual psychological functioning is that it makes people radically incapable of taking a critical distance from what the group believes in. So once people are in the group of this process of mass formation, they will typically be typically uh, become blind for the for the absurd characteristics of the group think of what the group believes in, and this goes quite far. Right? The, the people who are in the grip of mass formation uh, can truly believe uh, the most absurd thing, the most absurd things, even if it concerns people who are usually highly intelligent and highly educated. That's something very characteristic. We could even say that historical examples show that the higher the level of education, the more vulnerable people are for mass formation. And also these people, highly educated, sometimes highly intelligent, tend to be capable to believe in the most absurd things. I will give you one example. During the Revolution in Iran in 1979, if I'm not mistaken, there was a a very large-scale mass formation that emerged in, in, in society, and people started to believe that the portrait, the picture of the Ayatollah, who was considered to be the leader of the mass, was printed on the surface of the moon. And every evening, when there was a full moon, people were looking up at the sky, pointing at the moon. And showing each other where exactly this portrait of the Ayatollah was printed on the surface of the moon. That's one typical example of an absurd, something absurd uh, that the masses started to believe in. I could give numerous other examples from the large-scale mass formations that happened in the Soviet Union, in Nazi Germany, during the witch hunts, during the the Crusades, uh, during the French Revolution, and so on. Uh, but I, will, I don't think we have the time to, 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 to give too many examples, but, but like that's one major thing, the, 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 the strange, baffling blind, blindness of people in the mass. A second one, a second important characteristic of mass formation is that people who are in the grip of it uh, seem to become radically unaware. It is as if they don't realize anymore that they lose many things while being in the grip of a mass formation, that used to be extremely important to them. So people seem to lose all awareness of their individual egoistic interests. Um, people who are in the grip of a mass formation can lose everything. And the leaders of the masses can take everything away of the people who are in the mass formation without the people um, noticing it. A third characteristic, which is also very important of of people who are in a mass formation, is that they become radically intolerant for dissonant voices. It is as if they are radically allergic, as if they cannot stand anymore, that people think differently or that people... It is as if they do not permit any individuality deviating from the group norm. That's actually uh, uh, one of the major effects of mass formation. And this can go quite far. People... In a mass, typically, tend to stigmatize everyone who doesn't go along with the masses. And in the end, they typically give signs to the people who are not who do not join the mass. And, and the ultimate uh, step is that they try to destroy these people. And they try to destroy these people in a typical way. They try to destroy these people as if it is their ethical duty to do so. To give one example again of um, of uh, this kind of process, uh, two months ago I was talking with had a conversation with Shorafeh ishtali a woman who lived in Iran during the revolution in Iran, and she mentioned that she saw with her own eyes how a mother reported her son to the state because she thought he was not loyal enough to the state, and how she hung the rope around his neck before he was home. And she claimed to be a heroine to do so. So that's, that's all these characteristics are really typical, characterize the strange process of group dynamics uh, that we call mass formation. And once you understand, they can they, they seem really mind boggling and strange, but once you understand the mechanism of mass formation, you see that from a psychological point of view, it's quite logical. I don't know if we have time to uh, to describe this, the mechanism of mass formation, in a, in a nutshell, if you want. I,
1: I will give it my own layman's perspective based on the reading of your book, and you tell me how close to it I can get. So uh, the mechanistic worldview of the Enlightenment led to a feeling of meaninglessness in modern life, which has uh, taken the form of a free-floating anxiety that manifests as an urge to uh, fixate meaning um, symbolically uh, down to a uh, a, a totalitarian level, which takes on technocratic um, flavoring because of the mechanistic worldview and ultimately results in uh, what we have seen manifest quite clearly in the past couple of years, but really over the course of the past century. (laughs) Am I in the ballpark with that? Yeah, yes, yes, yes. That's the gist of the book. But we, maybe we can describe it in a little bit more detail.
0: <laughs> <Yeah>. um, <laughs> that was quite a summary. <laughs> this is a broad line of reasoning, indeed. Mm. But, uh, but as you said, indeed, like the uh, the phenomenon of mass formation became increased. It has always existed. As a, it, is, it exists as long as, as mankind exists. But the last three centuries, it became increasingly strong and it lasted longer. And that's indeed the fact that it became uh, more powerful the mechanism of mass formation is due to the fact that throughout the last three or four centuries, or at least that's what I claim in my book, and that's how I describe it in my book, during the last three or four centuries, we've seen the emergence of the so-called mechanistic view on man in the world, uh, which, which means um, we became convinced, or our society became convinced, that the universe and everything in it is a materialist system which can be reduced to dead elementary particles, which all interact with each other according to the laws of mechanics, all atoms, molecules who interact with according to the laws of, of mechanics, and who, which can be under described as, as this entire mechanistic universe uh, can be described according to the mechanistic view of man and the world uh, in a strictly rational way. And it's indeed this kind of, uh, this, this view on man and the world that led to not only to a A very rationalist, closed thinking, which um, isolated uh, mentally uh, individuals from the world around them. But also, it also led to an excessive industrialization of the world and, and an excessive use of technology. And that, in its turn, leads... I give several examples in my book of how this works exactly at the psychological level. This, in its turn, leads to people who feel disconnected from their environment that's something typical it's clear now that throughout the last three centuries the number of people who feel lonely and disconnected with their environment who stopped resonating with the world around them uh, is increasing progressively and just before the corona crisis um, uh, this problem uh, became really really strong Teresa May in Great Britain appointed a minister of loneliness because she acknowledged how many people felt socially isolated, and in the, in the in the states in the United States, the U.S. Surgeon General also mentioned that there was an epidemic of loneliness and something very typical. And so, there's this this these lonely, disconnected people typically tend to um, experience a lack of meaning making. That's logical. I explain it in my book. Once you feel dis- disconnected, you start to, to, uh, to be confronted with experiences of lack of meaning making in life. And then the third step, as you mentioned, these people also typically are confronted with so-called free floating anxiety, frustration and aggression. That means anxiety, frustration and aggression, which is not connected to a mental representation or in even, sim- in even simpler terms. A kind of anxiety, frustration, and aggression through which or in which the person doesn't know what he's anxious for. for Why he feels frustrated and why he, why he feels aggressive. And that's an extremely aversive mental state. If people are in this state, they have the feeling that they have no control whatsoever uh, when confronted with their anxiety. Because they just don't know what they are anxious for. So in this state, uh, uh, when many people are in this state something very typical might happen in society. If a narrative is distributed under these conditions through the mass media, indicating an object of anxiety and providing a strategy to deal with the object of anxiety, for instance, a virus and the lockdowns, anti-vaxxers and the QR code and so on, then there might be a huge willingness in the population to follow the strategy to deal with the object of anxiety, even if the strategy tra- strategy in many respects is utterly absurd. And the reason is people participate in a strategy just because in the first step, it gives them a feeling of a capacity to control their object of anxiety. And also, they also find an object to project or to direct their frustration and aggression on. So that's extremely important. That's the first step, the first psychological advantage. The second step is even more important. Because many people at the same time participate in a strategy to deal with the object of anxiety, people start to feel connected again. And that's the main reason why people go along with the narrative. Even if this utterly absurd, they want this connection. People are intrinsically, essentially social beings. And if they feel disconnected, they feel in the most aversive mental state. And that's cured symptomatically by the mass formation. I say symptomatically because a mass is a group that is not formed because there are strong connections between individuals. It's a group that is formed because there is a strong connection of every individual separately with the collective. So people in a mass feel a tremendous solidarity and citizenship, but it's not a solidarity of one individual to another individual. It's a solidarity from one individual to the collective, to the group. And that explains why. For instance, during the corona crisis, people were all talking about solidarity. They were full of solidarity. And at the same time, they accepted that if someone, if if their neighbor got an accident on the street, they were no longer allowed to help them unless they accidentally happened to have surgical gloves and a surgical mask at their disposal it was written like that on the websites of the european government for instance and in the same vein people accepted during the corona crisis that when their father or mother were dying that they were no longer allowed to visit them and they did so in the name of solidarity with the elderly. That's the absurdness. That's a strange thing. So, and, and that's also the reason. So in a mass. All the energy. Is sucked away. The psychological energy. Is sucked away from the social bonds. Between individuals. And it's all invested in the social bond. Of the individual with the collective. And that explains. Why people in a mass. Or why mass formation and totalitarian states. Typically end up in a radically paranoid atmosphere in which the citizens are willing to report everyone, even the people they loved most before the mass formation, to the collective or to the state if they have the feeling that this one individual doesn't show enough solidarity with the collective. So that's the strange effect a mass formation has. And in which it is, that's important to, to, uh, to mention, I think, Mass formation is not similar to hypnosis. It's identical. Exactly the same process happens in a hypnosis. In a hypnosis, there is someone, a hypnotist, who has a natural skill to withdraw the attention from the environment of someone else and to focus it all on one extremely small aspect of reality. For instance, a pendulum that is moving before the eyes of the hypnotized person. And consequently, after that, It is as if reality doesn't exist anymore, the rest of reality. And this goes extremely far. A simple hypnotic procedure is sufficient to make someone so insensitive for what happens with with his body, for instance, if his attention is no longer focused on his body, that a surgeon is perfectly capable of performing an open-heart operation in which he has to cut straight through the skin, the flesh, and the breastbone of the patient without the patient noticing it. So that's the strength, the enormous strength of the focusing of attention that exists in hypnosis, but also in illusionism, for instance, and also in mass formation. And that explains, of course, why you can take everything away of people when they are in a mass formation without them noticing it.
1: Now, given that I am currently neck deep in research about the development of mass media, I immediately picked up on what was really just a almost a passing observation in this book, but I think an important one, that the modern phenomena of totalitarianism really wouldn't be possible without the mass media. And I find that particularly ironic because, of course, also mass media is a result of the technological developments that resulted from that mechanistic worldview that came out of the Enlightenment. So uh, it's a problem that feeds upon itself, perhaps. But can you talk to that role of media in performing or at least enabling this hinop (laughs) hypnosis. Yes.
0: Um, Mass formation, as I said, existed before the mass media existed. So uh, it can emerge spontaneously in a a population. Uh, But indeed, the uh, mass formation cannot last for a long time if there is no mass media supporting it all the time, articulating time and time again. The narrative that lead that led to the mass formation so that's uh, also one of the reasons the emergence of a mass media in the last two centuries uh, that the mass formation lasted longer it's not the only reason the emergence of a mass is always a complex dynamical system in which different factors are involved and the most important thing definitely is the fact that is that the population has to be in this specific state that we have just been describing, or that I just described this isolation, this uh, lack of meaning making, free floating anxiety. But indeed, the, the, the mass media are an important other factor in the process. Uh, which makes uh, that uh, the mass formation can can last longer and longer and longer, of course. And and, the- and,
1: and one thing that you point out in the book that I, I think was a spot on observation is talking about the uh, the the fact that uh, coronavirus numbers and statistics always constantly visually represented. Here are the numbers, and uh, that that isn't just uh, a sort of visual technique for keeping people's attention or something along those lines. It really, it, in a way, it's focusing people's attention to uh, to. Uh, foster that mass formation. Talk about the importance of visualizing, visually representing numbers and statistics in this process.
0: Yes, yes, yes. yes. Uh, from the beginning of the 19th century onwards, scholars who uh, studied the phenomenon of mass formation have remarked that rational argumentation has no impact whatsoever on what a mass believes in. And that's 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 typical. It's, it's, it's logical because... Uh, once the field of attention uh, did become very narrow, um, the, the information uh, that is situated outside the narrow field of attention uh, is just no longer taken into account. It's just no longer available in the computer system, you could say, of the people who are in the mass. And that, that's also the reason why people who are extremely intelligent become seemingly utterly stupid in a mass, just because no matter how powerful the processor of the computer is, Uh, It can just not take into account information that is not in the system. (laughs) So that's the reason. And so people are insensitive to rational argumentation in a mass, but they are very sensitive for constantly repeated emotional messages and also visual, strong visual stimuli, Um, images, and also visually represented numbers. Numbers are represented in graphs and so on. Um, In a strange way, that's something that I also describe in my book in chapter four, I think. In a strange way, people are psychologically predisposed to think that numbers represent facts. And uh, in certain cases, a number can be quite objective if it uh, refers to a strictly unidimensional phenomenon, uh, a measurement, for instance. Uh, is is rather objective Uh, but usually most phenomena involved um, uh, most phenomena in nature in the world in life are not strictly unidimensional not at all and that's why the in that case the numbers do not represent the facts at all not at all it's just an interpretation of the facts which which is very subjective like whether or not someone died from corona uh, can never be definitively uh, put in numbers, just because people die from many things at the same time—they die of a virus, but also of a weakened immune system, or of uh, overweight, or or of uh, of uh, several other comorbidities involved in um, in, in, in dying—and whether or not you consider someone as a corona victim, to a certain extent, to a large extent, is always a philosophical question. <laughs> it's, it's it's simply impossible to provide a, a radically objective. Uh, description of, of the number of people who died from corona and it's clear in the crisis that we actually uh, chose for a rather enthusiastic counting of the of the of the number of people dying from corona i think <laughs> uh, so but to answer your question yes people in the mass uh, gustave lebon describes this very well or insensitive to rational argumentation and very sensitive to emotional constantly repeated messages and uh, visually represented Uh, numbers, figures, um, and uh, stimuli in general, images and so on. Images of people dying, for instance. Um, Yeah.
1: I I thought uh, a very nice and simple demonstration of that in the book was um, even something that seems objective, like the measurement of a coastline is actually dependent on the scale uh, with which you're measuring. And uh, yes, the the The, the numbers changes depending on what scale you're using.
0: Nobody Nobody can determine how long the coastline of Great Britain is, for instance. Nobody can do so. Dependent on the measurement unit, it it might be um, 5,000 kilometers long, but it will equally well, if you use a smaller measurement unit, it it might be 50,000 kilometers long. And that's something that uh, Mandelbrot, one of the most famous mathematicians of the 20th century, described in a... Um, in a wonderful way in his paper, How Long is the Coast of Britain? It's something that is constantly underestimated by modern man, uh, that the that the world cannot be expressed in numbers in an in a, in a, in a, in a objective
1: way. And in a sense, I feel that that realization, really seeing and understanding that is actually a key part, perhaps, to snapping out of a mass formation event. I don't know if it's as simple as that, but I think if this that type of reflection was more widespread we might be less privy to being railroaded into some sort of uh, totalitarian state
0: oh, that's right that's right but the, the, the problem of course is that
1: uh, once the mass narrative uh,
0: has ceased the mass media uh, that the mass media usually are also in the grip of the hypnosis and the leaders are also in the grip of the hypnosis at least the public leaders believe in the ideology they, they they represent not always in the narratives they used. So in this, usually um, they will constantly continue to distribute um, uh, the numbers and the figures that support uh, their narrative, mm-hmm. and um, that's one of the major problems, of course. Like like even in the old totalitarianism uh, of Stalin and Hitler, uh, the government apparatus constantly used statistics and numbers. People, that's also something that people are not aware of, but totalitarianism always starts from a pseudo-scientific narrative, which is constantly promoted and supported by uh, statistics, which, according to Hannah Arendt, one of the most famous philosophers who wrote about totalitarianism, totalitarianism. she, she, she wrote this wonderful book, The Origins of Totalitarianism, she said that uh, in the beginning, the statistics sometimes are a little bit reliable in the beginning of a totalitarian system. But after a while, they start to show a radical discontent for the facts, she, she said. Uh, and that's typical for uh, for mass formation. Uh, uh, once a mass formation emerges, people don't want it to stop. And they, in the end, they start to be willing to, uh, to um, falsify uh, all the statistics they use. Um, so... Uh, what can we do indeed? Uh, we could try to educate uh, the population a little bit more uh, about the relativity of numbers. But I think that that might be a good idea. But I think that the most important thing is just it's something very elementary and something very basic uh, is that we have to continue to speak out. That's just crucial. It's crucial. We have to live up to the most fundamental ethical duty a human being has. Namely, articulating the words that emerge in him or her in an as sincere way as possible, not because we are sure that we are the only ones uh, who know the truth or that we are the ones who make no mistakes and the others uh, uh, are asleep or something, not because of that, but just because every human being has the ethical duty, I think, to just articulate his opinion as well as possible. And in an as sincere way as possible, and if we stop doing that, uh, that's already described in the Talmud. There's this nice quote in the Talmud that if a human being stops articulating the words that he thinks are sincere, that he will slowly lose his soul. (laughs) And history has shown us, and it's actually perfectly logical that um, as mass formation is a kind of hypnosis, It is always induced by the voice. Totalitarian leaders know that very well. They constantly use indoctrination and propaganda to just keep the population in the grip of of the narrative and of the voice. And that's something, for instance, that uh, classical dictators don't do. Classical dictators, in the first place, use terror. They use their aggressive potential. Uh, Also, a totalitarian state does that, but only in a third third place. First, there is indoctrination propaganda. um, And... um, That's exactly also why uh, the the totalitarian leader knows that, knows intuitively or consciously, Stalin knew that very well consciously, that it is the voice that keeps the people in the grip of the state. And so the opposite is also true. If there is a dissonant voice, then the hypnosis of the leaders and of the population will constantly be disturbed a little bit. And that's something that is very well described by Gustave Le Bon in his uh, famous book, uh, The Psychology of the Crowd. In that case, uh, the people who articulate the dissonant voice uh, usually are not able to wake up the masses, but, and that's crucial, that's the most important message message, in a practical, from a practical perspective that I uh, bring in my book. I describe it much more detailed there. The people who articulate the dissonant voice might not be able to wake up the masses, but that doesn't mean that their voice has no effect. It has an extremely important effect. It constantly disturbs the mass formation and it makes that the mass formation does not go so deep that the people in the mass become convinced that they have to eliminate, that they have to destroy the people who do not go along with them. So that's the the crucial importance of continuing to speak out And history shows us time and time again what happens if the opposition, the dissonant voice stops to speak out. In 1930, that happened in the Soviet Union. In 1935, in Nazi Germany, the opposition stopped to speak out. They considered it too dangerous to continue to speak out. They thought they were dealing with a classical dictatorship. And what happened within a period of six months to one year, the destruction campaigns of the totalitarian state started. So, um, uh just once you understand the mechanism of mass formation you understand that there is only one option you have to continue to speak out in a sincere way you have to watch out and that can happen as well that the people who do not go along with the first mass formation don't form a second mass formation that they do not become a mass themselves in that case they will be destroyed inevitably Um, uh, but the first 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 most important crucial principle is That everybody has to continue to speak out, not trying to convince the other, because that doesn't work and it's counterproductive, but just living up to this ethical principle that you have to articulate the words you believe in, and then that will give you the optimal result. Not trying to convince the other, just saying, look, that's your opinion, I have a different one, and I will just articulate it, and you can do with it what you want. You can accept it or reject it, I don't care. But I just claim my right to express my opinion in a quiet way. And, uh, and that's at the practical level. Of course, there are deeper things that we can do, uh, more at the mental level, um, at the psychological level, at the level of consciousness, which are also extremely important, even more important.
1: Uh, in the book, you, you uh, cite a few times the Ash Conformity Experiment, showing that people who are amongst confederates that they don't know to be a part of the study, can be influenced to say things that they know, question mark, aren't true, but they start to question themselves or they just say things to go along with it. I've talked about that study before. I've also talked about the Milgram experiment, but one of the things about the Milgram experiment that is often not talked about is the fact that that study was done multiple times under multiple different conditions. And depending on whether or not people, for example, saw multiple Confederates going uh, in front of them in the study, who themselves went all the way to 450 volts delivering the electric shocks at the command of the uh, the study uh, master, um, uh, were more likely to the point where 90 one percent of uh, those participants were likely to go all the way to 450 volts, delivering those fake electric shocks. Uh, uh, conversely, uh, in studies where people see an example of someone going ahead of them who refused to go to that 450 volt le- level and actually quit the experiment, ten pr- compliance to going to the 450 volt level level fell to ten percent among those participants. So it, I, I think this is a documented phenomenon that if we see people speaking out, resisting, struggling, not conforming, that will have some effect on breaking that hypnosis that you're talking about.
0: Yes, that's true.
1: Definitely. History also shows that. Exactly, exactly. There is uh, no dearth of examples. So let's, um, before we get into really-
0: Can I, can I, can I say one-, one Please thing do, more, yes. like, um, I rarely refer to the milgram experiment because I think it's methodologically less sound uh, than for instance the ash experiment um, but it's an, it's an interesting line of thought of course the milgram experiment uh, but I, I i as I said I think that the experimental method was less uh, sound than uh, than in the ash experiment but indeed but as you say history shows us that if you for instance if nazi officers were located in a country where the people were not sensitive to the mass formation such as uh, bulgaria and um, and denmark they started to wake up they, they, they typically started to say t- such things as what does this crazy guy in berlin uh, actually think uh, eliminating an entire uh, race or people they started to see the absurdity of what they were doing and um uh, that, that shows us, indeed, that, that uh, that uh, one, the leaders of the mass often are also in the mass hypnosis. Uh, that doesn't mean that they believe the narratives they use. That's something different. They usually don't. But they believe the ideology they, they represent. Uh, for instance, in this case, we should distinguish between the technocratic transhumanist ideology that is seizing the world now uh, and the narratives that are used to promote this ideology in the world. Uh, that's a difference. Uh, um no. Anyway, that's uh, something uh, that I wanted to add to, uh, to what you said. Um,
1: I think from the perspective of people who are viewing this not just as some sort of theoretical thing about the world, but a real lived experience, uh, there may be the personal threat to freedom and safety that people are concerned about, that they may f- understand what we're talking about. And yet, think, well, do I want to be the person who's out there speaking out against this, where that could make me the target of this free floating anxiety? I could become the scapegoat for this process that's happening right now. What do you say to those con- types of concerns
0: uh, They are definitely uh, uh, there's a reason to there's a reason to to fear that you might become the scapegoat of a a mass formation. Masses always need a scapegoat. Um, And that's exactly why it is so important to continue to speak out. Because if you shut up, uh, you will just contribute to the conviction in the masses that you are not human. Uh, In a mass, masses already think that people who do not go along with them lack solidarity and lack citizenship. And if the people who do not go along with them, who, who do not buy into the narrative... Uh, stop to speak out, the masses will become even more convinced uh, that they are inhumane. Just because what distinguishes us from animals as a human being is exactly that we use language and that we have a capacity to present rational, to explain our position and our choices in a more or less rational way. So we have to continue to try to do so, even if we know that we won't be able to convince the other, we still have to continue To speak out because it will disturb this emerging conviction in the mass that uh that the people that that the people who do not go along with it uh are inhumane so it's extremely important the risk that uh, someone becomes a scapegoat uh, is is, uh, realistic um uh, and and what's also important to realize is uh that the masses if you continue to speak out, probably won't try to destroy you, and but that they will in the end exhaust themselves, and that the mass will destroy itself. That's something that has been described time and time again, again by every scholar who has been studying mass formation. In the end, it destroys itself, and you have to make sure that the mass destroys itself, uh, or that it exhausts. I, I'm not talking so much about the individuals that are in the mass formation, but that the mass formation as a phenomenon, stops to exist, it will destroy itself in the, in the, in the end. So um, uh, Hannah Arendt says that uh, that is the one uh, cynical advantage of mass formation and totalitarianism, that in the end, it always destroys itself. She says it always becomes a monster that devours its own children. And in the, the developments in the Soviet Union showed that in the most clear-cut way, uh, in, the, in the beginning, Stalin started to uh, isolate and destroy all the people who didn't fit into his worldview, like the aristocracy, the large farmers, then the small farmers, then the goldsmiths, then the Jews. And after that, that were all people, according to Stalin, that could never become a good communist uh, because they were too much attached to private property. And, and But after that, Stalin just started to, started to destroy basically everyone uh, and nobody... Uh, still understood like what the hell was going on. But everybody continued with it. Stalin, Stalin eliminated 60% of his own communist party, for instance. In the same vein, uh, Hitler started with the gypsies, the Jews, the people with uh, uh, limitations, uh, the Polish people and the Lithuanian people were on his, uh, on his list and also the German people actually because uh, he wanted to eliminate every German with heart and lung disease. Uh, to begin with, <laughs> to begin with, and um, um, so that's that's the problem. That's something that if you if we speak out as a dissonant voice, on the one hand, we should do it for ourselves, but also for the other people because they don't realize that they will self destroy. Uh, of some of them at least don't realize. So um, yeah, and also I think just when you speak out. I think you always go to a faster evolution as a human being. You, every time you speak out, you become a little bit stronger. If you speak out in the same, in in a a quiet way, I think. And if you uh, do it uh, in the first place uh, because you want to live up, because you want to stay true to certain ethical principles, then you will feel that in a certain way, Quiet strength starts to emerge in yourself Um, and that as a human being, you start to become more aware of your existence and you start to to become stronger and deeper without and more and less dependent on your ego, I think.
1: You point out in the book uh, the example from the Gulag Archipelago, um, Solzhenitsyn's observations of Grigory Ivanovich Grigoryev, um, and this prisoner who exemplified uh, uh, ideals of ethical purity, who actually became stronger and healthier as he did so, um, which starts to get into one of the most fascinating aspects of this book, which was perhaps the surprising part for me, (laughs) towards the end, where we start exploring uh, the psychogenesis of various ills, diseases, and or cures in the body and in the spirit and in the soul, the mind of human beings, how this relates, um, matter versus uh, spirit, these sorts of things, which of course we have from our mechanistic worldview that we've been imparted with, we've been taught to think is pre-scientific or pseudoscientific or non-scientific, this is irrational bunkum. Um, You point out, actually, there is a lot of rational evidence for understanding that, in fact, the consciousness does have an effect on the material world. But let's talk about that and how, although it's obviously important to undermine any mass formation that that is developing, uh, this is, as you say, not just... A particular localized phenomenon it is something that is coming up again and again and again and again because the same sorts of conditions are there how do we fundamentally change the conditions that give rise to this mass formation
0: exactly that's the big question and that was the question that I really wanted to address in my book um, even if we can break this mass formation uh, there will be, if the, if the if the elementary conditions, psychological conditions the population is in, such as this loneliness and this lack of meaning making and so on, uh, continue to exist, then a new mass formation will emerge immediately. Uh, we've seen this now, actually. We the, 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 the corona narrative is uh, disappearing a little bit into the background and we immediately got this narrative on the war on Ukraine and now also the monkeypox. Uh, and all kinds of stuff who is emerging and who immediately uh, forms a new new mass formation. And uh, as Hannah Hannah Arendt said, we will be confronted time and time again with totalitarianism uh, unless, in one way or another, we can stop being obsessed by rational understanding. Because that, I think, in my opinion, is the ultimate cause of of the problem of mass formation and totalitarianism, namely this view on man and the world in which we believe that everything around us can be rationally understood, manipulated, uh, controlled, uh, and that rational understanding should be the guiding principle in human life and in human society. I think that this view on man and the world always claims To be scientific but i highly doubt that i don't think i think that science has brought us two things at the same time on the one hand it led to an increased rational understanding of the world which was sometimes very impressive It, it accumulated a kind of rational knowledge which indeed allowed us to control, manipulate uh, the world to a certain extent. But at the same time, it also brought us something else. All great scientists, and we often forget that, it uh, doesn't matter when we're talking about Schrodinger, Bohr, Heisenberg, Planck, um, Mandelbrot, uh, Lorenz, uh, René Tom, uh, Janos Bolyai. I can go on almost infinitely. All these great scientists started, usually, from a rationalist view on man and the world. But they all concluded, in the end, that the capacity for a rational understanding to explain the world is highly limited, and that science actually concluded that the core of life and the core of nature, the core of every of reality, can never be grasped in rational terms. Uh, systems theory, for instance, showed this in a paradoxical way that it showed strictly, la- strictly rational in a mathematical way that all complex dynamical systems, which is almost all phenomena, all phenomena in nature, st- behave strictly irrational. They behave as an irrational number, literally, in science. And once you start understanding that, once you start to understand that the essence of the things around us Never can be grasped in rational terms, and that it even doesn't behave rationally. Such as Niels Bohr said after a life investigating um, uh, the behavior of elementary particles of atoms. He said, "When it comes to atoms, language can only be used as poetry." And also, just because it, they are not rational, they are not logical. It took me t- until my until I was twenty five to understand that that reality is not rational around us and. Uh, René Tom, one of the most famous uh, mathematicians of the 20th century and one of the founders of systems theory, uh, uh, articulated it like this. This part of reality that can be understood in a rational way is very limited. And the rest of reality we can only understand by empathically resonating with it. And that's something crucial. That's something crucial. I experienced it in my own life. Once you accept the limitations of your... Rational understanding. It is literally as if your mind opens up. When you think logically, you connect one logical idea to the other, and there is no space between the ideas. And once you start to understand and to accept that your logical thinking will never be able to really capture the essence of the world around you, the logical ideas open up. And it's literally, I think, as if the strings of your body can start to resonate with the eternal music of the things around you. And that's the moment where you really start to know things, not in a definitive way because you can resonate with it and then you will lose it again. You will have to go back to the world around you, to the people around you. And that this way you start to realize that you need the things around you, really. If you talk with a human being and you think that you can reduce this human being to the categories of your own thinking, you don't really need that human being and you destroy the essence and the singularity of that human being. But if you start from a different position, realizing or accepting that you will never be able to really understand the other and that he only can tell something of his truth, of his, of the singularity of his existence. In that case, you will realize that you will time and time again, have to go back to that other human being to witness and to participate in one irreplaceable aspect of the mystery of the universe around you. That's for me, the true revolution that has to happen here in our society. And it's that revolution. If we can understand, know the world in this way, in this resonating way. We will at the same time feel that we can better and better accept the idea of death and dying and suffering just because we know and we feel without someone having to explain it to us because we understand and know that um, we are part of the eternal music of the things around us and that we something in us will not cease to exist because our body Stops to exist, uh, or because life uh, does not go on infinitely, um, I think that's the major challenge for our culture. And if we can understand that rational knowledge is important, but that is not the ultimate knowledge, and that it's not uh, what should be the guiding principle in life, we will slowly feel reconnected with the world in a true way, reconnected with the world. And we will start to feel, we will start to become in touch with the timely principles, with the, with the eternal principles of life around us, of nature around us. And it is these principles um, that are the real guide, guiding forces for a society that is truly hum- humane, and that uh, uh, can give people a life worthy of living as a human being. Um, uh, it's that—that That is what we have to look for now, these principles. We have to try to become in touch with them again. And we can expect everything of these principles. If we stay, try to stay loyal to them, which is not always easy, definitely not for me, not for anyone else, I think. But as you, you referred to Solzhenitsyn uh, a few minutes ago, uh, and indeed, solzhenitsyn I, I also refer to uh, to his book in uh, in uh in my in my book in the last chapter i think or in the i don't know the 10th chapter i don't know it exactly but solzhenitsyn describes very well how uh, the prisoners in the gulags uh, how the majority of them became radically beastly how they seem to have lost every ethical awareness how they crushed each each other's skull uh, uh, just to steal each other's food and clothes, how they became even more uh, a plague to them to to each other than the prisoners already uh, were for them, uh, than the than the guards already were for them. And he also describes, and it's very touching, I think, and very very crucial, that how a small minority of the prisoners went in exactly the opposite direction, how in this pool of darkness they decided to be a little little light of humanity themselves and how they try to live up even more to ethical principles and uh, uh, indeed how some of them uh, as you you mentioned uh, um, Ivanovich Grigoriev how some of them uh, had such a spotless mind uh, and and refused time and time again to do something that went against their principles Um, and how they became indeed in a wonderful way how, they, uh, how their physical strength uh, increased and increased. Uh, while And while people, most people died in a few weeks or uh, in a few months, usually because of the cold and starvation, how some of them survived uh, the gulags for 15 years. Of course, we shouldn't expect uh, such things. It's not because we follow our principles. Uh, that nothing can happen to us. Of course, something can happen to us. And it's it's maybe good that something might happen to us. I mean, mean, that's exactly what we should try to do. No matter what we lose, just make sure that we don't lose this one thing, which is our humanity and our ethical principles. Um, uh, I think that's, uh, they can take everything away of us. Uh, Or maybe, or I will tell it in another way, not as so intentional or not so personal. Uh, We might lose everything or a lot, but we can make sure that we uh, don't lose uh, the essence of a a, a human life, namely uh, our loyalty to, uh, to certain principles of humanity.
1: Very well said. And there is a lot more to say about it, which you do go into in much greater detail in the past last few chapters of the book. So once again, I'll commend it to people's attention. Professor DeSmet, I find it interesting. There are so many different points of accord between your thinking and my own on so many different issues. Um, I, from very specific points, such as the form that totalitarianism takes in our modern era is not fascism or communism. It is techno- technocratic totalitarianism, which is something that I constantly emphasized to the audience. Two deeper points about how this this is not a rational argument that has been made that has rationally argued people into this position, so it's not a rational argument that's going to get people out of this position. It will be some form of narrative that will be presented in the right way that will resonate with people and hopefully lead them out of the mass formation, but will that fundamentally solve it? No, we have to reclaim our humanity. There are so many different points of what you're stating here that I think fundamentally are in accord with mine. But just finally, uh, I, I think I should address chapter eight of this book on conspiracy and ideology. And reading it, it was hard for me not to try to take it personally, <laughs> because I I have certainly been called a conspiracy theorist many, many times over the 15 years of the Corbett Report. And generally, um, people who are trying to dismiss or poo-poo conspiracy theorizing have ways of trying to put boxes around what what is being said. So I, I did take some of what was being said in the conspiracy and ideology chapter of this book almost personally, until I realized that almost all of the points that you were making in that chapter are points that I actually often make in my own work, which is that rather than thinking of it as the cartoon comic book conspiracy where everyone's sitting around a table controlling the earth, it's more nexuses of power that coalesce around shared ideology that cooperate on things of interest, not through necessarily a coordinated, detailed plan, step one, step two, step three, but because that is the best way for this ideology to forward itself. Other points like that that I've made many times. I'm not sure I'm totally convinced, By the chapter. I mean, for example, you talk about there are countless other examples that seem to point in the direction of a plan being implemented, such as the fact that the definition of pandemic was adjusted shortly before the coronavirus crisis, that the definition of herd immunity was changed during the crisis, implying that only vaccines can achieve it, that the counting method for COVID-19 deaths was adjusted by the WHO, so it was higher than the number of flu deaths. That the registration methodology of vaccine side effects could not but lead to serious underestimation. That all key political positions, when the crisis started, were held by politicians who were pro technocracy. All people referred to as the World Economic Forums, young global leaders, and so on. And I think yes, that's a that's a good start to an itemized list of reasons why people might think that there is some element of planning <laughs> to this. Um, I I guess perhaps I would say that the idea that it is either conspiratorial in the comic book sense or ideological purely is perhaps a false dichotomy. And I think there is some degree to which that can be an amalgamation. For example, uh, the phenomenon of mass formation and how that can be turned into a totalitarian movement um, broadly is not one that is an insight that's unique to yourself or myself or other people who have studied this. This is widely known. And it would strike me that people who know that about society might be able to use the development of mass formation as part of a plan towards the furthering of a uh, specific ideological goal. Um, Uh, Please comment on that as you will.
0: I think it's a complex dynamical phenomenon always. And of course, there is a a level of ideological planning in it, uh, unavoidably, and and nobody can ignore that at the moment. I think Uh, uh, it's it's completely clear uh, that in many respects, what we are seeing now uh, is 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 also uh, an effect of a certain ideological planning, and I think, and but I even think, I th- I even even think we shouldn't be surprised in that. That's like, but but my point is, the point is, I think that I try to make is that um, in the end, um, what is reigning or what is the ultimate um, cause of the problems we are in now, is not uh, a malevolent elite. It's a way of thinking, a way of thinking, a certain way of thinking, which created both the elite and the psychological state of the population. Um, I think that someone like Charles Eisenstein, if I pronounce his name correctly, uh, sees this in the right proportions. And also, uh, the book uh, Noam Chomsky published uh, decades ago, uh, also puts us in the, in the right perspective, I think. There is a certain ideological planning. There is uh, all kinds of int- intentional um, manipulation that always existed in society and that, will, that exists also now. Um, uh, but people tend usually to overestimate the degree of planning and intentions in the process. Or some do, some do. Some radically underestimate them. Some some are not capable of seeing that there is planning and manipulation and so on. And others seem to reduce everything to manipulation and planning. And both extreme positions simply uh, 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 lack validity. I think as soon as you know the people involved, the experts, for instance, and you talk to them personally, usually I know I know several of them personally. Um, usually you know. Immediately, that they are much less intentional than you think. <laughs> That's strange. Which doesn't take away. Which doesn't take away, of course, that we all know, or at least everybody who wants to see it can see it perfectly. That uh, in in the United Union, uh, in the European Union, for instance, there was this plan already in 2017 to introduce a QR code in 2020 uh, to um, to allow people access to both hotels, restaurants and the cultural sector. So that is written on paper. Uh, uh, the, 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 the European Union knew that already, um, uh, as we know now that the European digital ID will be introduced and that digital coins will, will be introduced. So there was this tendency to replace democracy by a technocracy. There was an entire elite and very important, a substantial part of the population who believed already that technological control would be the only solution to all the problems that impose themselves, such as climate change and terrorism and uh, all kinds of viral attacks and so on. Uh, so there was this tendency already in society uh, to believe that we should replace democracy by technocracy. There were institutions, we know them, uh, they are well known, uh, the world economic forum, the WHO and so on, who believe that we should have control the more, the world more and more radically in a te- in a technological way. Har- uh, uh, Harari, Yuval Harari uh, describes in his book, how this technologically, technologically controlled transhumanist way should or could look like how it will look like, according to him. Uh, so it's, it's close to radical blindness, to ignore this dimension, to ignore this dimension. But now, what is crucial, I think, is that people, some people, the only certain part of the population uh, ignores all this, and and and. But there are some people who try to reduce everything to us, and they might make one fundamental mistake. They might ignore, in their turn, something something extremely important, namely that this elite would never be the elite if it doesn't, if it didn't uh, capture and represent. Something, a certain tendency in the masses. The masses and the elite are typically in the grip of mechanistic thinking. Mechanistic thinking, which always promises them that it will make their life easier by more technology, more mechanization, and so on. And while in the end, it maybe makes life a little bit easier at some points, but it destroys something that is the core. human existence and that's what i described in my book with several examples and as long as the masses continue to prefer this the fact that their life becomes a little bit easier and are willing to pay for that by losing their most characteristic human humanity and human characteristics as long as the masses continue to think like that they automatically will create time and time again an elite. That uh, provides them uh, with these mechanistic advantages. And that indeed um, uh, convinces them that the only solution is a strictly mechanically, technologically controlled society. So, ultimately, it's this way of thinking. It's this view on man and the world that should change. And we should never make the mistake to believe that destroying the elite will solve the problem. Mm. It won't. Yes. The, 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 the elite will only disappear if we can think differently. Yes. And, and that's exactly what history shows us. In a classical dictatorship, if you destroy a part of the elite, the dictatorship usually collapses. If you destroy a part of the elite in a totalitarian system, nothing happens. This part of the elite is replaced and everything continues. That's why Stalin realized that he could eliminate, destroy... of his party, because he knew they will just be replaced, everything will continue. Because the point of gravity of the totalitarian system is not situated in the elite, it's situated in the mass, and it's situated in the ideology. And that's so important, both from a human, ethical, and the pragmatic point of view, that we make no mistake at that point. If we make a mistake there, we will be destroyed.
1: Absolutely. Yes. It's such a fundamentally important point. And again, completely in accord with my own thoughts and feelings on this, I've often said that, yeah, you could you could go out and decapitate everyone that you thought was part of this conspiracy. It would just, those heads would rise again until you defeat it at its core and fundamentally yeah. attack the, the underlying conditions that create that. Yeah, exactly. All right. Now, tons of food for thought in this. It would also be wrong from an ethical perspective. Well, of course. Yes, yeah, so I should <laughs> state that too. I, yeah,
0: I agree. It's not, it's not true. It's not true that all evil can be situated in a so-called elite. Evil is in every one of us. And uh, the first thing we should do is try to think about ourselves and how we uh, lack uh, the courage and the strength to be more ethical, and I, I'm talking about myself as well. To be perfectly clear, uh, I, I I articulate these words, but I know perfectly clear that I'm just like everyone, someone who is struggling very much uh, with uh, with uh, uh, to fall to in trying to follow uh, uh, what I tell. Um, but I think that's that's the most important thing, like. We should realize that as soon as we all succeed in living a little bit in a, in a more a little bit more ethical way, uh, that's the first and foremost thing uh, we have to we have to try to uh, to achieve. I think.
1: All right. Well, you have my accord on that point as well. Um, there are s- so many different points in this book. It's an extremely exceptionally important read. I will direct people's attention once again to com. The link will be in the show notes so that they can pre-order their copy. It will be av- available. On June 16th, so uh, I I couldn't I couldn't commend this more strongly. I think there's a lot of things in here that people need to really cogitate on about the way forward. And for me, the entire book was worth it for the sentence: At this point, we are able to pinpoint the psychological essence of totalitarianism, and attempt to reduce the polysemy of human language to the monosomy of a sign system. Which resonates with me so deeply because since I was about 19 years old, I remember going around in university telling all the grammar Nazis, stop shutting down the polysemy of language, man. <laughs> and that was like my go-to joke <laughs> for many years, but actually I think there really is something to it. And you can learn more about that if you do read this book. So once again, I'll commend it to your attention. Professor DeSmet, we could talk about this for hundreds of hours, I'm sure, but I think we'll leave it here for today. Thank you very much for your time.
0: Oh, thank you, James, for listening, for interviewing me, and for inviting me. It was a pleasure to talk with you.